Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of gore, rape, murder, and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1966, there was perhaps no better place to grow up than the affluent suburbs of Kenilworth, Illinois. Located just about 15 miles north of downtown Chicago, off of the shores of Lake Michigan, the wealthy neighborhood remains the ideal place to raise a family. As a child of the Great Depression, Chuck Percy saw it as nothing short of the American dream. Chuck became the head of a multi-million dollar company at the age of 29, and as soon as he was able to afford it, he purchased a sprawling mansion in Kenilworth. Within the comfortable confines of the gated community, Chuck provided his five children with the very best life had to offer. But the proud father's American dream eventually turned into every parent's worst nightmare. On the morning of September 18, 1966, Chuck awoke to the sound of his wife's screams. There was a stranger in his daughter's room. Chuck fled down the hall to his beloved 21-year-old, but it was too late. Valerie Percy had been slain in her own bed. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the mysterious death of Valerie Percy. This time, we'll cover Valerie's early life and the night of her violent murder. Next week, we'll cover the primary suspects and why this case remains an active, ongoing investigation today. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. While most parents favor their children equally, there's no denying Valerie Percy was the apple of her father's eye. She and her twin sister were the oldest of three, born on December 10, 1944. Valerie was her father's shadow from the time she could walk. She followed Chuck's guiding principles as well. He was devoutly religious and maintained conservative family values. As a millionaire businessman before the age of 40, he chalked his success up to his faith. These same ideals were passed on to Valerie and her siblings. Each morning, Chuck gathered the kids around the kitchen table to lead them in prayer and lessons in Christian science. Prayer became especially vital when the family suffered a tragedy. In 1947, Valerie's mother passed away during an operation. 
It was now Chuck's sole responsibility to raise the children. He didn't have to do it for long. In 1950, after two years of single fatherhood, Chuck remarried. That same year, he moved his new wife, 22-year-old Lorraine Geyer, and the rest of the family into his dream home in Kenilworth, Illinois. Chuck presumably named the mansion Windward due to the misty breezes coming off Lake Michigan. The stunning waterfront property had 17 rooms, a tennis court, private beach, indoor swimming pool, and even an ice rink. By 1955, Lorraine and Chuck had welcomed two children of their own. Together, the Percys were an inseparable family unit. Still, Valerie took after her father more than any of her siblings. Chuck had always been interested in politics, and Valerie admired this. His passion and views inspired her to join student government when she was in high school. Valerie was a natural leader, and student politics was one of her favorite pastimes. She continued to build her skills and popularity throughout her academic years. In 1962, at 17 years old, Valerie left her family home for the first time to attend college at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Valerie thrived during her time at school. With her honey blonde hair and warm smile, she was a standout in any crowd. She joined the sorority of Kappa Kappa Gamma and made too many friends to count. The whip-smart and kind-hearted freshman impressed all of her professors. By 1964, Valerie received more attention than she ever expected. Her family was thrust into the national spotlight when Chuck left his role as a prominent businessman to run for governor of Illinois. He hoped to apply his business skills to politics. His athletic frame, elegant speaking voice, and million-watt smile made him a perfect politician. Valerie enhanced his image with her own. By his side, their all-American charm was unmissable. She and her siblings' presence on the campaign trail was key to building Chuck's family man persona that voters loved. They even had a name for themselves, the Chuck Wagon. Chuck's run for governor was ultimately unsuccessful, but Valerie realized she loved the rush of political life, especially the opportunity to travel. She returned to Cornell determined to see even more of the world, studying abroad in France her junior year. Valerie wandered the streets of Paris and fell in love with the language and culture. She even considered dedicating her life to teaching French literature. When she returned to school, her popularity only continued to flourish. By the time she was wrapping up her senior year in 1966, she was considered one of the most brilliant and admired students on campus. With her Ivy League degree on the horizon and so many people behind her, it seemed Valerie's future was full of endless possibilities. That May, just before her graduation, Valerie's father called with an opportunity. How you doing, darling? I'll be even better when you all get here for the ceremony next month. We wouldn't miss it for the world. Now, I know this is an important time for you, honey, and the last thing I'd want to do is steal your spotlight. Oh, what do you mean? Well, darling, I might have your first job offer. How would you like to help with my campaign for U.S. Senate? <gasps> Daddy, really? U.S. Senate? 
Eisenhower's been begging me to get back in the game, and I think the voters we gained from the governor's race could give us a leg up. So, what do you think, kid? <laughs> I'd be honored. Well, would you look at that. <laughs> I'm winning already. In May of 1966, 46-year-old Chuck Percy announced his Senate run. By June, Valerie had graduated and returned to Windward to assist in the campaign. Chuck's aim was to unseat Democratic incumbent Paul Douglas. Ironically, Douglas was Chuck's professor of economics during his time as a student at the University of Chicago. A heated political battle ensued over the following months, But with the beaming Valerie at his side, the GOP nominee felt like he couldn't lose. Valerie's primary role in the campaign was working with volunteers. Her warm smile and, quote, disarmingly gentle nature made the long, unpaid hours of stuffing envelopes and door knocking appeal to just about anyone. On September 17, 1966, Valerie and her stepmother Lorraine hosted a dinner for two other campaign staffers. The group hoped to catch the end of Chuck's rally speech that night. Lorraine fumbled with the radio dial. When she clicked over to the right channel, the room hushed. And my daughter Valerie. She's my best precinct captain. It's true, Val. You're the heart of this campaign. Don't be silly. No one does anything alone. Oh, uh, speaking of which, let me help you clear the table. Nonsense. I can handle it. You go upstairs and get yourself into bed. All right, then. Good night, everyone. I'll see you at headquarters bright and early. Good night, Val. Around 10 o'clock that night, Valerie padded up the winding staircase to the long stretch of hall on the second floor. She made her way past her siblings' rooms until reaching her own. She likely drifted off to the sounds of Lake Michigan lapping against the shoreline. Valerie had no idea that a monster hid somewhere in the dark. Coming up, the Percy's lives and the entire nation are altered by tragedy. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the Serial Killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. And now, back to the story. The Windward Estate was quiet in the early morning hours of September 18, 1966. The members of the Percy family were asleep in their beds after a night of working on Chuck's campaign. In the midst of the silence, 
Lorraine Percy was suddenly awakened by a loud noise from downstairs. It sounded like shattering glass. Then Lorraine nervously glanced at the clock. It was about five in the morning. Surely, Lorraine thought, one of the kids had snuck downstairs for some water and dropped their glass. Lorraine closed her eyes and tried to lull herself back to sleep. But a few moments later, she heard groaning coming from the hall. She got out of bed and trudged down the hallway. The sound grew louder as she neared Valerie's bedroom. Lorraine called out to her stepdaughter as she entered the room. Valerie? Are you all right? (gasps) Lorraine saw someone hunched over Valerie where she lay in bed. He gripped a flashlight, and its beam revealed the young woman soaked in blood. Startled by Lorraine's entrance, the intruder shined the light directly into her eyes, blinding her. Lorraine screamed, then fled down the hall, sounding the burglar alarm as she did. When she burst back into her bedroom, her husband Chuck was jolted awake. What what is it, Lorraine? There there is someone in Valerie's room! Valerie! Oh, dear God! Valerie! Baby! Can you hear me? I think she still has a pulse! Stay with her! I'll call for help! Chuck rushed to the telephone. First he dialed the police, next his neighbor down the road, an esteemed surgeon named Dr. Robert Hoff. The doctor was first awoken by the blare of the alarm. When his phone rang moments later, he knew something was truly wrong. Bob, this is Chuck Percy. Will you please come right over? Valerie's been injured. I'm on my way. A police officer met Dr. Hoff and escorted him to Windward. He was surprised to find the front door ajar. Another officer noticed his urgent expression and approached him. Where is she? You the doctor? Yes. This way. Is she hemorrhaging? Is anyone trying to slow the bleeding? I'm afraid you'll just have to see for yourself. As the officer led Dr. Hoff to Valerie's room, they passed Chuck and Lorraine. Hoff noticed the desperation on their faces. He followed the officer upstairs. As soon as he entered Valerie's room, he knew it was too late. A later report by the coroner would indicate that the 21-year-old had been bludgeoned in the face and stabbed repeatedly. Her legs were drawn up to her chest and her arms covered her face. The doctor searched for a pulse. Then he turned back to the officer. She's... gone. All right, then. We'll take it from here, doctor. What about the parents? We'll have someone break the news. An officer ventured to the bottom of the stairs where Chuck and Lorraine held one another. They didn't say a word as he delivered the news. Chuck barely had time to process things before he was pulled away to assist another officer. One led Lorraine to the family room. He wanted to make sense of what happened. I feel like I'll wake up from a horrible nightmare any minute now. I can only imagine. Now, Lorraine, the last thing I want to do is push you, but did you see who did this? The killer shined a light in my eyes as soon as I came into the room. 
Could you make out any features at all? Anything that might help us find the suspect? Oh, just... I, I just don't know. I couldn't see. All right. That's okay. Do you have any idea how the killer got into your home? No, but... I heard them bolt down the stairs when I ran to go get Chuck from our room. <laughs> Who on earth could have done this? Within hours, the entire country was asking the same thing. Since the Percy family was so prominent, the case drew national attention. The police and later the FBI deployed their best men to work the case. Kenilworth Police Chief Robert Daly and another officer arrived and began their investigation in Valerie's bedroom. What a mess. Prints all over the place. Who knows if those belong to the killer or to the family. Could take a week to process. What do you think he was after? A nice place like this? It could be a burglary gone wrong. There's her wallet and some jewelry right on top of the dresser. Guy's not a very good burglar. Maybe it was an act of perversion? Hmm, you might be right. But part of me thinks it looks as though he came here just to murder her. Chief, can we see you downstairs for a moment? We found the point of entry. He must have come in through the music room. This way. I tell you, I'd get lost in a place like this. <gasps> you think the guy knew his way around already? It's possible. Whose room is this? That's his son's room. He was away for the night, luckily. And this? Twin sisters. So you're telling me this guy had to pass all of these doors to get to Valerie? Doesn't seem like a random act of violence. Here we are, gentlemen. The intruder entered the home from this set of French doors. Look at that. Clean cut right through the glass. Guy reaches his hand in and jimmies it open. This is presumably when Mrs. Percy heard the sound of glass breaking. Nothing else down here seems out of place. So he makes his way past the piano and upstairs. This maniac was on a mission. I've got to talk to Mr. Percy. Chief Daly escorted Chuck outside so they could speak. They were joined by one of Chuck's campaign aides. The three men ventured to the opposite side of the large swimming pool. Reporters had gathered outside Windward, and they didn't want anyone to hear their conversation. Mr. Percy, as a father myself, I want you to know I'll do everything in my power to put whoever did this to your baby girl behind bars. How can I help? I need to ask you some questions, and they may not be easy to answer. First, were you aware of any enemies Valerie might have had? That girl was pure sunshine. I can't imagine who would have wanted to do this to her. What about threats to yourself? Maybe an ex-staffer looking for some sort of revenge? You think someone might have done this to her because of me? As a senior member of Mr. Percy's campaign, I would have been aware of such a threat. None of our staffers have ever reported discontent. I have no doubt about that, but we have to explore every possibility. Now, Mr. Percy, we'll need you around for the next few days for the initial Mr. search. Mr. Percy! Over here! After that, I suggest you take your family somewhere more private while we continue. 
We have family in California. I will go and stay with them. Chuck felt like everything was slipping from his grasp, and he wasn't the only one. Chief Daly hadn't gleaned nearly as much from their conversation as he'd hoped. He racked his brain for the missing pieces, but a new discovery was about to cast the case in a brand new light. Coming up, authorities uncover an unexpected clue. Now back to the story. On the day of September 18th, 1966, investigators scoured every inch of the Windward estate and surrounding property. After Kenilworth Police Chief Robert Daly questioned Chuck Percy, he felt hopeless. But soon, he heard encouraging news from other officers. They found a set of footprints on the beach that led both to and from the home, as well as a brown moccasin. Police thought these might be useful clues, but how they fit into the story of the last few hours was yet to be determined. Authorities photographed the footprints and sent the items out for testing. Even though there was more to uncover, they refused to get stuck. There had to be more to the story. The Percys also tried not to feel trapped in their nightmare. They held Valerie's funeral on September 20th. 400 people joined them to mourn. Chuck's political opponent suspended his campaign out of respect, and Valerie's death was viewed as a nationwide tragedy. Then the family packed up their car and headed to California. When Valerie's body was brought in for an autopsy, the coroner noted multiple stab wounds on her face, chest, neck, and stomach. Based on the position her body had been found in, the coroner believed Valerie had put up a fight against her attacker, but she couldn't overcome him. Her skull had multiple fractures. The indents indicated that the object used was double-edged, similar in shape to a fireplace poker. The coroner determined the immediate cause of death to be hits to the left side of her head. This new information mobilized the police. They searched extensively for an item of that description, going so far as to deploy the Coast Guard to comb the lakefront area with magnets. Nothing was found for days. Authorities likely feared they'd have to start at square one. But on September 22nd, all that changed. Hey! Cut the motor! I think I've got something! What is it? A large... knife? It's a bayonet. Judging by the look of it, it hasn't been in this water long. Blades clean, no rust. We're about 40 feet from the coastline. Definitely within throwing distance. We need to get Silver to the lab, right away. Since the bayonet had both a blunt end and a sharp one, Investigators suspected it might be the murder weapon. However, enough time had passed that physical evidence like blood or fingerprints would have already washed off. While that didn't rule out the bayonet, investigators couldn't rely on it for a solid lead. Chief Daly focused on narrowing down suspects. The personal nature of Valerie's murder led him to begin questioning with those closest to the family. You worked with Valerie at the campaign headquarters, is that right? Yes, sir, that's right, every Saturday. (laughs) 
No matter how early I came in, Valerie was always there first. Mm. Were you close with her? I, I mean, Valerie was friends with everyone. We weren't especially close, but she was the kind of person who made you feel like you'd known them forever. Did she have a boyfriend that you were aware of? I don't think so. I heard she dated a bit in college, but I think the only man she really cared about was her dad. Did you and the other staffers often visit the Percy home? Sure. Windward was considered a second headquarters. The Percys were big on making us all feel like family. So, several of you had access to the home? I wouldn't say access. It's not like we had keys or anything, but most of us had visited the home at least once or twice. All right. That'll be all for now. I will be checking your alibi for the night of the 17th. Of course. The sooner you catch this guy, the better. Investigators confirmed this staffer's alibi. In total, by the end of September, they looked into 300 leads and lifted 221 fingerprints from people who might have spent time at Windward. But one by one, estate employees and campaign staffers were ruled out. However, a clue soon emerged that held some weight. On September 30th, the Lansing State Journal, a Michigan-based newspaper, reported on it. A black leather-faced, blood-stained glove is a chief link to the identity of the intruder who murdered Valerie Percy in her bed. The crime laboratory reported Thursday that wool from the glove matched fibers found in Valerie's bedroom and on the screen cut by the killer when he entered the home. While the gloves seemed like a step toward answers, police still didn't have enough to go on. They continued to comb through leads. Tips from Kenilworth neighbors came flowing in. Many made headlines, but led to dead ends. Meanwhile, the public continued to show the Percy family an outpouring of support. Perhaps because of this, six weeks after Valerie's death, Chuck resumed his Senate campaign. The family moved back into Windward in early October. Chuck's campaign was never the same without Valerie. No one could separate the candidate from his loss. It's possible that the tragedy humanized Chuck to some degree. He no longer appeared as a glowing idol, but a regular man. On November 9, 1966, Chuck Percy won his seat in what was considered an upset. Major networks across the country filmed the teary-eyed politician as he made his first address as a soon-to-be U.S. Senator for Illinois. There is one person not here to whom the night and victory also belong. Valerie would have been happy here. The Percy family reclaimed their tragic narrative in the press by continuing to do the work both Chuck and Valerie cared about. And they weren't the only ones who refused to quit. By the new year, there were over 1,000 items of physical evidence in the case. Some were clues, but none had provided the investigators with clarity. The public questioned why authorities couldn't nail down a suspect. In January of 1967, Chief Daly sat down with reporters to speak frankly about the challenges of the case. Do you have any suspects at all? We've chased down leads in more than 25 states and several foreign countries. 
With so much evidence, you would think the case would be easier to solve. The FBI contacted people in Canada, Puerto Rico, France, and England. We are checking them all. And another thing, one lead always leads to another. Our people, 14 men plus myself, work regular hours. But if a lead turns up, we work past midnight. So, how many people are you actively interviewing? We have questioned more than 2,500 persons. The press also asked about the bayonet, but the police didn't have any conclusive answers. In fact, the police had yet to establish any clear connection between the bayonet and the murder at all. To make matters worse, a second test on the fibers and the glove showed they might not have been a match after all. Unfortunately, this did not satisfy the public. Pressure was mounting on detectives. By August of 1967, national interest in the story was so intense that police were forced to move their offices up to the second floor of the station for privacy from the media. As the days turned to months and months to years, newspapers continued to criticize investigators' slow movement. Many thought that jurisdictional infighting caused unnecessary stalling. Eventually, the case went completely cold. Boxes of crime scene notes and interview transcripts were sealed and collected dust in the back rooms of the Kenilworth Police Department. It went on like that for nearly seven years, until 1973, when a stunning confession brought the investigation back to life. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode on the killing of Valerie Percy. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Ellie Margolis, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Lori Siegel, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Freddie Beckley. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Marcy Edwards, Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Brian McCormick, Sammy Amounts, and Laith Walshlager. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 